Welcome to the June episode of OMP Clinical Care Insiders, an original podcast series produced by the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists. I'm Seth O'Brien, Vice President of Prosthetics at Wheeler OMP and Chair of the Academy's Scientific Societies Committee. We'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Spinal Technology. As you may know, June is Scoliosis Awareness Month, and I'm especially excited to welcome today's guest, Scott Thatch. Scott is a certified and licensed prosthetist orthotist with Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and the chair of the Academy's Spinal Orthotics Society. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You bet. So I, I know you've been a longtime member of the Academy since you were a student, right? Yes, I joined the Academy when I was at Georgia Tech as a student way back in 2011. And then we recently had a chance to catch up a little bit in Nashville at the 2023 meeting. Any highlights from that meeting for you? I really enjoyed the trivia night that we had for the different societies. I thought that was a great time to hang out and not take things so seriously all the time. That was a fun one for me, I, I have to admit. You know, it's so many days of excellent clinical content, right? But it's nice to kind of let your guard down and get a little rowdy, have a little fun. I actually heard a couple of people told me that there was some ruckus going through the walls. Did you have a story about that? Did, did somebody tell you that we were being a bit loud? Yes. Uh, after our trivia night, there were a few people that were next door that wanted to know what we were doing because they thought they should have joined our session instead since it seemed like it was so much fun. It was a maybe a shameless plug here because I think we'll hopefully try to do it again, but it, it was a good time. And uh, the presentation, you know, the slides of all of the questions, I have to admit, I think I, I burned afterwards because I had a few goofs on my end that questions that either had only one answer, which was obviously the right answer, and like the generic, you know, B, C, and D answers didn't get put in right, or uh, or some questionable clinical answers that may have had more than one right one. In, in my defense, I, I didn't submit all of the questions for the trivia night, but it's a little laid back, relaxed fun. Yeah, our team actually missed a question that I submitted, actually. <laughs> wait, you guys missed. Wait, wait. So, so as Spinal Orthotic Society chair, right, you, you submitted a question for the trivia. And uh -huh. do you remember what it was? Yes. The, the question was, what year was the Spinal Orthotic Society founded? And the you answer, missed the question. I missed the answer. Yeah, I, I thought it was in the 2000s. The answer is 1994, actually. Surprising. Uh, well, you know, how did you guys end up doing in, on the night? I think we were near the bottom for our <laughs> That's okay. It was, it was a lot of fun. Well, at least you got fed and you, you had a cocktail or two, right? Right. There you go. What about, so you mentioned joining the, the academy when you were a student. Bring me along your career path a little bit. I know you're in Atlanta now. What things have happened along the way? Did you know you were headed to Atlanta early on or in that kind of institutional setting? Or did that slowly kind of develop from, you know, a step here and a step there? What was that path for you? So when I was at Georgia Tech, I really enjoyed my spinal class there. And I really enjoyed learning about scoliosis. And I spent many hours as a student shadowing at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta at the time as well. 
Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Was it the content that just really sparked your interest or did you have a teacher in particular, a professor that was a bit of a mentor or what, what grabbed your attention? I think the part that really grabbed me is the ability to see change over time from their initial evaluation to that in-brace x-ray when they're wearing their scoliosis brace to see how much correction that we can get by applying those corrective forces on their body. Yeah, absolutely. A bit of a unique scenario there, right? It's it's one of the only specialties within our field that you can, you know, maybe see tangible anatomical results, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think that's part of why I like what I do. You know, I do work with only pediatric patients and my focus is between scoliosis, pectus carinatum, as well as cranial remolding. Uh, helmets. And with all three of those, I get to see results, you know, pretty quickly. In this setting, do you also see whatever else may end up on your schedule or do you really get to narrow in on just those things? I'm not necessarily a specialist where I only see those things. I am in one office where I see whatever comes through, essentially. So yes, I do get to see a wide variety of orthotics but it does seem like this particular office that I'm at has a high focus in general with cranial and scoliosis. So you mentioned kind of that instant gratification of sorts, right? You know, over months or even years maybe, but being able to see that improvement in a relatively short amount of time, is there any particular techniques or any subspecialties within that scoli world or or even the cranial world that really interest you? I am doing some research on cranial remolding right now. And so part of that is a study on the amount of time patients wear the helmet and the effects of treatment based on the amount of hours worn. So we are using a monitor that, that measures that wear time. And is that focused primarily on compliance in terms of whether they're wearing it the amount they're supposed to or more of the prescription aspect of how long they should be trying to wear it? Right. It comes down to that question. We tell families that they need to wear it 23 hours a day, but we don't know if it matters based on their severity or their age or other factors. We just say, in general, let's wear it 23 hours a day. So gotcha. the research is hoping to narrow that down and figure out what is the actual number of hours required to get a good result. So is that 12 hours? Is that 18 hours? Is that 20 hours? What What is that magic number necessarily? Yeah, that's wonderful. Definitely needed. How about on the Scully side? Any particular methods or different approaches that you're particularly interested in or or not interested in for that matter? I think one thing that we are doing here that's quite different from other places, and this helps being at an institutional location, is that I work closely with our orthopedics department and I spend right now two days a month where I go down to one of our hospitals and I'm in the operating room with the orthopedics specialists. And we apply what's called a metacasting or sometimes called EDF, 
testing, which is applied on infants with scoliosis. And if it's not neuromuscular, if it's just idiopathic infantile scoliosis, we can generally see improvement and actually cure their scoliosis over time, which is very different than the adolescent idiopathic population. Yeah. Wow. There's so many aspects of it, you know, as a, as a prosthetist myself, you know, there's, there's so much of that that interests me, but I also don't know nearly enough about it. Right. And it's, it's always so fascinating to hear some of the different approaches that are out there or just information. Right. And as we start to learn more about what is effective and like you mentioned with the study, I think it's great information that can be documented and start to build that base of knowledge. So excellent work. If I'm not mistaken, did you do a hands-on session uh, around that of some sort in Atlanta, I think, a couple years ago? Right. So this was the 2022 Academy meeting in Atlanta. I proposed and actually got approved to present on this hands-on session at the meeting. And we actually brought our equipment and our casting table from our hospital to the meeting to actually demonstrate how this would be done. Now, we didn't do this on, on an actual patient because, uh, you know, that would not be so good to do. But we did carve some models out of foam and got to demonstrate for participants that attended that session on how we do this technique in the OR. And included with that, we also presented on how we modify a infantile scoliosis brace on the computer. So it was both hands-on in terms of how we do that casting technique in the OR, but also how do we treat someone in this population that may be different than how we would treat someone else. Are you doing those modifications typically in, in a digital workflow or was the digital side just as a representation or, or a show and tell for that specific session? I would say most of my patients I do, I am doing all that digital workflow myself where I'm, I'm modifying it, the model on the computer myself. And then I basically just send it off to get it carved and pulled how I want it. Yeah. I get the control and I can really fine tune what I want in that design. I find this like so fascinating. And so are you taking a traditional, like a hand cast and then scanning the cast, or are you actually scanning the torso? We will do both. So it depends on where we are. When we are in the OR and seeing a patient, then I will just take a quick cast of them and then I will scan that cast. If I see that patient in the office, as long as they're not too, you know, squirrely and, you know, wants to move around a, a whole bunch, then yes, I can get a, a scan of them in the office. But if not, then, you know, we can always do the the casting and, and then scanning the cast. At a children's hospital, you never have patients that are squirrely, right? They all just no, no, sit no, no. very quietly and yes, they, yeah. Okay. Very well behaved. Yes. <laughs> you obviously haven't treated my kids yet. <laughs> You mentioned bringing your casting table in is, this may be a silly question, but is, is it a specific different type of a table than an exam table or an OR table of some sort? Is there a specific design and a specific build for these casting tables? 
Yes. I don't know if you're familiar with like a, a RISR table where a patient is suspended in the air, but this is along the same lines where they are suspended, where we support, you know, their coccyx area as well as their arms, but then the rest of their torso is then left free for manipulation and for casting. Yeah. So it kind of helps float them in the air, basically. Yeah. Perfect. You mentioned a couple of the things that you were doing with the society, but, but what are some of the projects that you've been working on that people might be able to look up? You know, the, there's always great content coming out in the Academy today, which is, you know, highlighting different societies. Do you want to touch on some of the things that you've accomplished as a society in the recent past or things that may be coming? Yeah. So we had our most recent Academy today for the Spinal Orthotic Society published in January of this year and we had some really great authors and articles in that uh, one of the articles talked about what are people doing in the united states are they treating patients with you know nighttime orthoses or a traditional like boston scoliosis module or more asymmetric designs where are people using? Are they using scanners? Are they using just measurements? How are they treating patients, basically? Just looking at industry trends for that. I think that was a great article. Another article came from a physical therapist we know here locally in Atlanta. Uh, we recruited her to write that article on the Schroff therapy method to help with treating scoliosis from a physical therapy side. You know, all of that is in conjunction with bracing, but how the two partner together to really get a better overall treatment for that patient. Yeah. Uh, how to optimize the outcomes, right? Right. And then the uh, last article comes from one of our newest leaders in the Spinal Orthotic Society. And it was an interesting article about looking at the T1 vertebrae in the x-ray and based on the direction of the tilt that can affect your outcome of what you want to do whether that means applying more corrective force or maybe that means you need to back off on your corrective force because you overcorrected and therefore tilted the t1 vertebrae too much uh, I hope I summarized that well for uh, what that article explained, but I think the author did a much better job of explaining that. So I, I <laughs> would recommend people read that. We'll be sure to post your email address in the show notes so that, you know, the comments can be coming directly to you. <laughs> Let's take a quick break for a word from our episode sponsor, Spinal Technology. Spinal Technology is the global leader in the design and fabrication of spinal orthoses for the stabilization, immobilization, and correction of various abnormalities of the spine. For over 30 years, medical experts around the world have depended on our team of American board-certified orthotists, highly skilled technicians, and dedicated customer service experts for better outcomes and the highest quality of patient care. We take pride in sharing our knowledge through comprehensive training and activities. Visit spinaltech.com resources for all of our Scoliosis Awareness Month resources. What about with the organized sessions in Nashville? I think you guys had something that you presented there as well, right? 
Correct. Yes. So we hosted an organized session as the society. This one was on textbook treatment versus real life clinical treatment of scoliosis. So what we ended up doing was explaining that essentially the way we were taught as orthotists, as well as maybe even currently today, what students are being taught in our O&P schools is a little bit maybe outdated. It doesn't necessarily reflect what we currently do in clinical practice. So I kind of phrase that as the textbook treatment is the past. We had some clinical case studies that were presented and that is kind of representing the current modality of treatment. And then we also had Sunny from the society who presented on her research on the biomechanics of scoliosis. And this is from her, her dissertation work that she's been working on these last few years. So that really kind of shows us in the future of how we should be treating scoliosis treatment moving forward. Probably a good spot to give a shout out to Sunny. She was a, a leader of the Spinal Orthotics Society for a while before you came on board, right? Correct. So she was the chair for a while. And then I was asked by Sunny as well as Kara if I would be willing to take on the, the chair role. So I've been doing that for the last few years. And doing a great job, I, I will say. <laughs> Thank you. Sunny will be taking back over as the chair in July, though, so that I can focus on some of our other projects going on in society. Yeah, I know a little bit about that one. I want to circle back to that in a minute. But first, I think that you're setting a record on the podcast because you might be the first person that we've talked to that wasn't voluntold by Sarah Thomas to assume their role with no input whatsoever from it. Yes, I was... More voluntold by Sonny and, and Sarah. <laughs> How about what does Scott do for fun? We kind of, you know, we kind of jumped right into all of the, you know, the clinical talk, but back up just a little bit. What does Scott Thatch do for fun? And actually, you know what, before you answer that, I'll tell you that you're a, a relatively quiet person and very understated at times. And one of my favorite memories from Atlanta was, I, I, correct me on any of this, but we did the society kind of social event, uh, kind of a, a round table in Atlanta. And Scott was coming directly from work to try and make it at the end of the day. And so as we had all of the different society chairs uh, on the stage talking about what was on the horizon and things that were happening in each specialty, right as I get to the Spinal Orthotic Society, I see Scott kind of walk in the back door and come down the side. And so I just kind of said, since spinal orthotics chair wasn't able to make it, we're just going to pick a chair and have them talk. And as Scott's walking up, I go, how about you? Come on up and, and have a seat. And I think there were about 15 or maybe 20 students kind of in the, the front area that were so confused as to what was going on because you just walked right up and sat down and started talking about spinal orthotics society. <laughs> and I don't think they caught on that uh, I put you on the spot to just walk right in and sit down. And for whatever reason, I it was hilarious. And you did it so well. And you did it in such a Scott way that was just very, yes, okay, well, here's what we're doing. There was no, I, I can't fluster you no matter what I do. And I, I try sometimes just to get a rise out of you. I hope that's how I practice with my patients. You know, I try not to get too flustered depending on, on the day. You know, some days are busier than others, but 
I try to do the best I can for each individual person that comes through the door. Well, you're, you're well suited because you're much more mature than I am. And I think that's probably the key. Well, thank you. How about, well, I guess I cut you off. So tell me what the mature Scott Thatch likes to do for fun. How do you unwind? What do you do outside of work? Um, I do enjoy pickleball and I play that about once a week. Uh, I'm on a tennis team and I do that throughout the year. Was tennis something you did growing up? Were you a, uh, any, any state championships in tennis or, or anything like that that I don't know about? No, nothing in, I actually started playing tennis when I went to North Carolina and did my residency in orthotics and I was living there by myself. So I got really good because I joined a group and was playing five or six days a week sometimes with them and uh, just picked that up. But if you're asking about what I did like way back then, I do have some chess championships under my belt. Ah, all right. Yeah, I used to be, you know, if I was still competing, I would probably be in the top 100 still in Michigan from where I grew up. So these are serious chess times. Yes, we had um, some national championships in high school and we came close a couple times for state championships. So I remember finishing, I think, second and third. Wow. Junior and senior year. Yeah. Very cool. And I hear you're a cook too and all that extra free time that you have. Yes, all this extra free time when I'm not taking care of my three-year-old, I am cooking. I do enjoy cooking all sorts of different cuisines and dishes. Sometimes on the weekends, especially during COVID, I really enjoyed making very complex dishes that would basically take most of the day to do one dish, basically. Yeah. I would say I'm a bit of a foodie and, and that, that might be the biggest thing that I miss about COVID as, as awkward of a statement as that is. But, uh, you know, there was a little bit of, you know, slow down time associated with COVID. Right. And I do miss, we would cook a lot and same thing, do, do stuff that you just never had time to do. Man, th these always go so quick. I, I want to jump ahead to a couple of things. So first of all, as June is Scoliosis Awareness Month, I do know the Academy has a webinar that the Spinal Orthotic Society will be hosting. And, and I believe, are you moderating that? Right. I am moderating that. And it's on challenging scoliosis cases. And so I have two great presenters. One of them is Megan Glenn Castile, who authored that T1 Tilt article in the Academy Today. She also presented at our organized session this year in Nashville. And then I also have my coworker that I roped into presenting. So Brian Emling, who is the chair of one of the societies as well, but he's presenting on a complex neuromuscular case that I think will be very fascinating for people to, to listen to. Absolutely. And, you know, as we're recording, that's just a couple of days away. But but when this comes out, I think will be happening either today or or is already out if you're listening. So you can certainly find that on the Academy's website. Clinical Challenge Scoliosis Bracing. So you can take a peek for that. And also, you know, I think probably the biggest thing that I really wanted to get to, and of course, I've, I've left us very little time. I think this is incredible work that you have started to kind of spearhead and take on. Tell me a little bit about what's on the horizon for yourself and for the Spinal Orthotic Society revolving around the 99 coding and your efforts to establish a new code. 
Yeah, so that's a, an initiative that I decided to take on for myself for this year. It started when we met in Nashville, actually. And Chris from the Upper Limb Society had mentioned how the process, basically, of converting something from a 99 code to a formal L code through the submission process. And so that really sparked my interest in that. The Pectus Care and Embracing right now is currently coded in our field with a 99 code. And so that does mean that there is a lot of extra hoops and, and things for us to do when we try to get approval for this. And we know that bracing works. We know this through a critically appraised topic that was published by the Academy. And, you know, that was back in May 2017. And then we also have numerous research articles that have come out in the last few years that have shown the effectiveness of bracing and how, honestly, in the past, practice carinatum would be treated through surgery. So, you know, they would do this surgery to correct this and we found that bracing can can do the exact same thing to correct it. So yeah, a less invasive approach to that. You know, a, just a, a little bit of background for anybody who may not be as directly involved with sort of the the 99 codes and, and you know, the, the not otherwise specified or the miscellaneous or or even some of the, you know, there's the, um, in prosthetics, we have the, the 7510 code for, you know, minor parts, but different insurances will approach those codes that don't have fee schedules specifically associated with them very differently. So you may have one insurance company that arbitrarily just decides any miscellaneous code, we're going to discount at 60% for no reason. Or they may put a cap of, yeah, we'll pay for that, um, you know, 7510, but we'll pay a maximum of $94 or even with a 99 code. So one of the the pieces that's so important to establish a new code, whatever it may be for, is not only the administrative time and the amount of effort and time and clinical appointments, you know, be it the CPO or the physician or the orthopedic surgeon or the PT or all of those things that go together to really fight for that care. It's so important to get a smoother process and and to make sure that everybody has a, access to that care and then also make sure that we can get reimbursed for that care that like in this case may be a much better clinical approach that's just not represented in the fee structures or in the coding so what an amazing and, and meaningful way to really try to make a change that will be felt across the profession and by all of your patients. What have you found just quickly in the last few minutes here? What have you found is sort of the biggest challenge of that process? I know it's early on, I think, for you, but um, I, I didn't even realize that one person could sort of start that initiative. I thought it would have had to be from some regulatory body and involve committees and everything else, but that's not the case. Right. So that's what Chris basically explained. It doesn't require a huge body. It doesn't require some sort of big institution or whatever. It can be submitted by a single person. And it's just submitting the right paperwork and to the right body to go forward for that review. That's what's required. So I'm in the process of just figuring out what do they need and how can I provide that information in a succinct way that they'll understand and hopefully then approve. Well, bravo. 
It's such a great project and thank you for taking that on. If anybody's listening and wants to get involved, you know, either helping you with that or with the Spinal Orthotic Society, what's the best way for them to reach out or become involved? Yeah, I would say best way would be to join our society for one, but they can always email myself or Sunny and our information is on the Academy's webpage. Perfect. And we can always uh, connect anybody who's interested with the right people. So if they just reach out to the Academy, the Academy can certainly take it from there. Scott, it's been wonderful having you on. I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's always hard to coordinate busy schedules, but I really appreciate you being here. And thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of OMP Clinical Care Insiders. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with key voices in the OMP community, discussing their area of clinical care and sharing personal experiences as professionals in that specialty. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And again, we'd like to extend a special thank you to our episode sponsor, Spinal Technology. For more information, be sure to visit their website at spinaltech.com. And don't forget to check out the Academy's other podcasts for OMP professionals. The award-winning OMP Research Insights with Dr. Steve Gard and OMP Rising, a podcast created for emerging professionals in our field. For more information on the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists, visit us online at onp.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.